Welcome to Global Answers. Please join us as we discuss the relevance of God's eternal word relating to events in this day and what it means to you. And now, your host, Jeff Jenkins. Warm greetings. Uh, we're glad to have you with us again in the studio. And uh, with us today is Professor Guermo and Stephen Strew, also a professor. And we're featuring Professor Guermo, who is uh, an assistant professor at Iowa State University. He has many credentials. Uh, we're going to read a few of them to you so you can know. He's also a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, and he has a passion for the stars, and he believes in ID, intelligent design. And we're going to be discussing and asking him several questions. One, the Big Bang Theory, what he feels about that. But we're going to ask him, uh, Professor Grimmel, uh, what is the theory of intelligent design. If you would elaborate on that, we'd appreciate sure. that. Well, it's actually pretty simple. Intelligent design posits that certain features of the universe, of nature, are best explained by intelligent causes. Mm -hmm. So, for mm -hmm. example, the molecular machines inside the cell of every mm -hmm. living thing, mm -hmm. uh, the fine-tuning of the constants of nature that, that describe the, the workings uh, of the universe. Mm -hmm. um, turns out that if you change the values of the constants or the masses, the fundamental particles, just a little bit, uh, life wouldn't be possible in the universe. So life, the possibility of life in the universe is balanced on a razor's edge. Uh, so those uh, observations, empirical data about the universe, uh, point towards a designer, intelligent cause. We're talking about uh, Professor Guermo's book, The Privileged Planet, uh, co-authored this book, an excellent book concerning the habitable zone. And uh, again, he's going to tell us more about uh, the material in this book. It's an incredible read. Intelligent design is our subject. Uh, we have a brilliant Cuban exile, takes top buildings in the intelligent design debate we have in one article. And uh, tell us a little bit about your, uh, your childhood, your rearing, and uh, uh, what brought you to the States, etc. Well, uh, what brought me to the States was Fidel Castro. Uh, <laughs> we came as uh, Cuban refugees in 1967, uh, arrived in Miami, uh, basically their clothes on our back, and started over. And so, uh, I grew up in Miami, um, and I was always interested in, in science, especially astronomy. And so, yeah. from an early age, I, uh, when I obtained my first telescope for Christmas and small, or slightly larger ones after that, I've always been uh, studying the stars and studying the heavens. I've always been uh, and, uh, truly inspired by by the beauty of the night sky and the heavens. So I've always wanted to be a scientist. How interesting! Now, uh, going back to your being in exile, your parents then for political reasons, for just uh, economic reasons? What, what, what were their primary reasons for leaving the country? Uh, they, they were just booted out uh, by oh, Fidel Castro. And I so, see. Yeah, we came as uh, refugees, uh, and um, they, my parents weren't political activists or anything. I see. The whim of uh, Fidel Castro and confiscated the property, of course. How interesting. And, uh, he confiscated like, property as well? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, the house that we had. It was no longer ours, and so we left. We just take for granted, don't we? That's right. In our country, in America, the freedoms that we have and the liberties that we have to think that a tyrannical government can come and uh, literally take possession of your own uh, land is unconscionable in our, in our country. And yet, uh, that was something that your parents uh, uh, had to undergo, uh, as well as probably countless many more. Yes, in many Cuba. more. There was, yeah. in fact, that was the, one of the early waves of Cubans who came to the United States uh, in the 1960s. Uh, who had to start over, and 
And many Cubans have been very successful in this country because they're welcome with open arms. Exactly. So then uh, your parents as well, um, uh, how were they educated and what was their background? Uh, they didn't have a, a very high level of education. They, they worked in uh, farms uh, yeah. in Spain uh, in their younger years and, and moved to Cuba uh, and then were married in the early 1950s. Well. Uh, but uh, so I, you know, I, my, my, my interest in science didn't really come from my parents. It's something that I uh, developed on my own, uh, just, just from uh, the inspiration uh, uh, that I had looking up at the night sky. I was inspired by it. And uh, so I, I was kind of a geek kid and <laughs> spent a lot of time reading science yeah. books and uh, uh, doing experiments and observing. Explain and, to us in your book, you refer to the galactic habitable zone, yes. uh, uh, a, uh, a razor's edge uh, where life can thrive, and uh, I, I find that extremely interesting. Well, the galactic habitable zone uh, is that region in the galaxy where, where life can exist. Mm -hmm. uh, let me just remind uh, everybody what a galaxy is. If you go up uh, out beyond the city lights and go to a dark area mm -hmm. and look up at the night sky, mm -hmm. you can see this band uh, of what looks like, like clouds uh, stretching across the sky. Uh, that's the Milky Way band. That's us looking edge on into uh, what we call the Milky Way galaxy. Mm -hmm. And if you step back and look down on it, it would look like a big pinwheel. Mm. Uh, so it's a bright at the center and has these arms that stretch out from the center. And uh, if you look at it uh, edge on, it actually turns out to be very thin. Uh, as it turns out, uh, you can't just have life any old place in the galaxy. Hmm. Some places are just much too, da more, much too dangerous to have life. Yeah. Near the galactic center, you have uh, dangerous radiation events like supernovae and novae, and there's also a giant black hole at the center of our galaxy mm -hmm. that emits radiation from time to time. Um, and so you can't have uh, life there. You can't have civilizations there. Hmm. Uh, now, there are other problems, more subtle problems, uh, for uh, life near the edge of the galaxy. turns out you don't have enough building blocks to build a planet like the Earth mm. near the edge of the galaxy. So there's this happy median, this uh, midway point, uh, where the threats to life are not too great, but yet you have enough building blocks to build a planet like the Earth. The so-called Goldilocks zone. Yes, the Goldilocks zone for the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, uh, we call that the galactic habitable zone. And so that's a place where you can find... Uh, life in the galaxy. But that's only one of many conditions. Now you co-authored that term, isn't that correct? That's right. I was a co-founder of the concept of the galactic habitable zone, along with uh, my colleagues Peter Ward and Don Bronley mm -hmm. at the University of Washington who wrote the book uh, Rare Earth, well, which argues that Earth-like planets in the universe are very rare. Now you <laughs> also came to the conclusion that uh, there is probably no other life out there in the stars. I believe I'm reading it this way. And there was an article you wrote, astronomer uh, Guillermo Gonzalez has studied the universe and decides there's nobody here but us Earthlings. Yeah, nobody here in our galaxy. Okay. So I, I, when you take all these factors in galactic habitable zone and a related one called the circumstellar habitable zone, right. which is the best place for life around a star, mm -hmm. and there are, there's yet another habitable zone. So there's actually three different habitable zone concepts. When you take all these factors you need for life together, uh, you find that the probability for other intelligent life in the, gal the galaxy, the mm -hmm. Milky Way galaxy, is extremely small. So I think we're alone in the galaxy. I can't say the same thing about the whole universe, right? Because we don't know the probabilities well enough. Even so I'm not a, saying we're yeah. unique. Well, even as a pastor, I couldn't say that. Whatever God wants to do that's outside right. the and, confines and of our theologically, that's right. right. God right. could create sure. life elsewhere uh, right. if He wants to, 
but just empirically right. uh, from, from the probabilities and also from the uh, uh, negative results from the searches, mm -hmm. uh, it turns out that you know, we haven't uh, found anything. And uh, so we can set limits on the probabilities from that as well that uh, we're almost certainly alone in the gal galaxy. But now that's the opposite of what Carl Sagan uh, taught uh, in his opinion based right. on 1% of 100 billion stars, there'd be 1 million uh, there could be 1 million civilizations in our galaxy. Yes, uh, Carl Sagan was working at a time when uh, we had a far poorer understanding mm -hmm. of the, all the conditions you need for life. Uh, since his day, uh, we've been discovering many more factors that you need for life and has really been reducing those optimistic estimates. In fact, I used to be optimistic hmm. uh, back uh, in the 1980s uh, and before. I used to think that, well, there's so many stars out there. You look up at the night sky, especially away from city lights, and you see mm -hmm. thousands of stars. How could be, we be so arrogant yeah, to think right. that we're the only life in the universe or right. the only life in the galaxy? Right. Well, I've since learned that arrogance have no, nothing to do with truth. <laughs> uh, okay. But anyway, I didn't think I was being arrogant right. uh, when I discovered that, well, if you take all these factors into account, right. it turns out that there aren't enough stars in the galaxy to account for us hmm. just by chance. Uh, and, and we could be alone in the universe, but I, again, I just don't know the probabilities to say that with, with certainty. Uh, and so Carl Sagan uh, was mistaken, mm -hmm. uh, primarily because he was working uh, with um, less data. Mm -hmm. uh, they had, uh, at his time, there was less understanding of what all the conditions you need, you need for life. And in the privileged planet, you bring up the concept um, that if you were just working on probabilities of the number of stars, uh, that there could be a, a, just a tiny percentage of them that would have a, a terrestrial planet like Earth. Um, but then what you went further into was other factors that were also necessary for yes. life, not just the, the, the type of planet around the, a certain type of star, but um, other life-giving factors. And then you found a correlation between those factors and, uh, and discovery. Maybe That's you right. can go a bit more into that. And so, uh, in fact, there's over 20 factors you need hmm. uh, for life, and uh, we detail those in the book. Yeah. And if you just make a list, tabulate right. on one side of the ledger, let's say, a list of all the factors you need for life, uh, and then you ask a different question elsewhere, and you say, okay, what conditions you need for making discoveries, for mm -hmm. observing the universe around you, and mm -hmm. discovering the fundamental laws of the universe, and you make a separate ledger. You find that you have the same list of factors. Mm. There's an amazing overlap between the conditions you need for life and the conditions you need for scientific discovery. Mm. And it's that overlap, that correlation between those two, uh, apparently, what you might have thought were unrelated things, right. is what we argue is evidence for design. Okay, there's <laughs> no logically necessary reason for these to to correlate or overlap so much. And so uh, that's, that's the evidence for design. That, and basically we conclude that the universe w was designed for discovery. It was designed for living creatures to be able to discover the universe around them. And, and one, that, of the, yeah. one of the famous discoveries yeah. was uh, during a solar eclipse where they were able to discover the element helium. Yes. That's one, one of the important discoveries uh, resulting from our ability to observe solar eclipses, which yeah. depends on a number of, quote, coincidences the transparency of the atmosphere and the optical, mm. uh, the very close match in size between the angular size of the moon in the sky and the angular size of the sun in the sky. Mm -hmm. uh, and all these coincidences allow us to measure the uh, spectrum of the sun's what's called chromosphere during an eclipse, and that resulted in the discovery of helium. 
in the 19th century. It also resulted in the confirmation of uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity in 1919, uh, which is now the premier theory in, in, in physics. Hmm. Um, and it's been confirmed since then with other experiments, but that was a very key observation uh, that led to its confirmation and rapid acceptance by scientists uh, in the early 19th century. Uh, but these coincidences, yeah. it turns out, are not coincidences. Yeah. Because the very conditions you need to make these observations are the conditions that make Earth a habitable planet. Yeah. Well, one of the things about the galactic habitable zone is that when we look, when you mentioned that you, when you look up on a, on a dark uh, night um, and you see the, what looks like clouds, these are really millions of stars yes. um, in a particular spiral arm of the galaxy. Is that correct? That's right. And if we weren't positioned where we were yeah. to be able to look out in, at, a, at a perpendicular direction, I don't know if that's the correct term, but we wouldn't be able to see into deep space. Maybe that's We a have a very concept. good vantage point from our particular location mm -hmm, in the galaxy mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, for uh, doing astronomy, for doing cosmology in particular. Uh, there is, uh, for example, dust extinction in many parts of the galaxy, uh, and that limits uh, how far you can see. Incredible. In fact, it's much more uh, dense dust uh, towards the center of the galaxy. Yeah. So if we were located closer to the center of the galaxy, we wouldn't be able to see nearly as well. If you're looking farther away uh, in the, inside the spiral arms, we wouldn't be able to see as well. And there are other factors that are a bit more technical. But basically, not only is this particular place the best place to live yeah. in the galaxy, the yeah. galactic habitable zone, yeah. but it's the best place to observe from, uh, to observe the distant universe. So again, there is this overlap between the conditions for life and, and, then, and the conditions for scientific and discovery. I find the fact that we, as human beings, are in intelligent, intuitive, deducing people. And that's why as a pastor, I, you know, I can believe in nothing else but, of course, a creator who enabled me to have a mind, have a, a soul, and be able to, to, to comprehend not only the, the physical world that I live in and deduce that there is a creator, but then to say, you know, for myself, there's accountability, there's, uh, there's a God, there's a Bible, uh, there's so much, it's so much, uh, it's so much richer and deeper uh, you coming from a scientific uh, standpoint, I realize in some ways you rock, walk a razor's edge between the, 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 the politicians and, uh, and your faith. Um, how does your faith play into uh, intelligent design? Well, my faith makes me open to discovering possibility of objective evidence of design in nature. Yeah. So in other words, I don't impose my faith on the evidence or on right. the data. I don't... Exactly. I don't uh, force patterns into the data, for example, the way a child can see Disney characters and the shapes of clouds. Right. Uh, that will be pattern imposing, and that's, of course, illegitimate right. in science. Right. And that's not what we're doing. Right. We're actually this claim that we discovered this objective pattern in nature and that anybody else can discover it. It doesn't yeah. depend on any prior metaphysical or religious assumptions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my being a Christian, yeah. uh, a person of faith, opens me to the possibility of detecting objective evidence of design in nature. Sure. Uh, now, a materialist, in particular a scientific materialist, yeah. would not be open to such evidence. That's they true. would be closed to it. They would have blinders. And, and so there are certain aspects of the universe uh, that the universe could display about itself that they would not refuse to accept. Did, did your uh, discovery in science, did uh, it make uh, your Bible become more real to you? It certainly confirmed uh, aspects of my faith Yeah. Uh, that um, I could learn something about the nature of God yeah. by studying 
creation, by mm -hmm. studying mm -hmm. the universe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, as a design theorist or a design researcher, of course, I can't identify uniquely the God of the Bible with a design, right. evidence of design uh, in the cosmos. That. Sure. But it confirms yes, it does. my beliefs as a Christian. Yeah. It doesn't prove them deductively, of course, yeah. but it's, uh, it's additional confirmatory evidence. Yeah. And so, yes, uh, it, it certainly supports uh, my faith. Have you ever um, looked at uh, the uh, religious um, writings or uh, uh, done a comparative religion study with regards to um, other faiths and uh, their concept of, uh, of a designer? There are certainly the, the faiths, uh, the religions of the book, mm -hmm. Judaism, Islam and Christianity all have the idea of a designer mm -hmm. and that certain aspects of that designer of that God could be known through his creation. Mm -hmm. That's in the Old Testament which all those three faiths have in common in particular Psalm 19 verse 1. Mm -hmm. uh, they all have in common the idea of uh, um, that, that the heavens declare the, the glory of God. Right. Uh, and, and certain other faiths have the idea of a creator. Some don't. Uh, some faiths don't say anything about a creator. Um, most of them would probably be compatible uh, with the idea of a designer. Mm -hmm. uh, even, even the ancient Greeks, who uh, believed for the most part in the eternal, uncaused universe, they didn't believe in a creator, mm -hmm. but they believed in the idea of design. Mm -hmm. uh, some of, of course, they placed that idea of design in different places. To some, it was like an essence mm -hmm. or a principle. Mm -hmm. gotcha. To others, it was more identified with a mind mm -hmm. in the cosmos. Uh, so. So, so that's kind of an unusual twist. You know, you, you don't have the concept of a creator, but you do have the concept of design. Mm -hmm. So it's just one illustration where, hmm. um, while the designer can be the same as the creator, it can be identified exactly right. as one. Yeah. Some, some philosophies mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. don't view it that way, but certainly it confirms uh, the Christian expectation that uh, the creator is the, also the designer but there's the a, But in your own experience and in your own faith, the God of the Bible best satisfies the... Evidences yes. that you're that you're discovering in uh, your yes. studies of astronomy and yes. nature. Uh, I found nothing in in, in my studies of uh, astronomy and, and and science in general that contradicts uh, my faith. In fact, it it supports it. Uh, it gives uh, a confirmation of it. What was your illustration, Stephen, earlier on about uh, Mount Rushmore? I just thought that was unique. <laughs> that the the um, this is a, a concept uh, that. Um, uh, Bill Dembski uh, came up with was uh, that when you're looking for design, and you mentioned superimposing uh, cartoon characters on the clouds, um, he he took it to a, a term he, he he called specified complexity. A, a pile of leaves is complex, um, but but it's not a, spec a specific kind of complexity yeah. which you can actually uh, detect something beyond just a pile of leaves. That's he, right. he he made some. Uh, uh, comments about looking at the Black Hills from a, an, a, an alien's point of view, That's an extraterrestrial, right. and uh, seeing the evidence of design. Maybe you could yes, explain so that a bit just more. Just imagine yeah. an alien coming to Earth mm -hmm. and sitting down in front of the Black Hills and looking up, and then they see these patterns, uh, which uh, look unusual. And uh, they also had been studying the Earth a bit uh, from a distance right. and been studying our history and such. And so they immediately recognize, oh yes, uh, those uh, black hills uh, there are the product of intelligent agents. Uh -huh. They weren't the product of wind and erosion processes. Right. Now how they reach that conclusion? Well, if you look at the four faces represented on, on uh, the, uh, the black hills, yeah. uh, 
they correspond to what look like human beings. <laughs> Not only that, these human beings correspond in particular to four specific human beings, mm -hmm. namely four past uh, American presidents. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, you can call that that identification of the pattern on the mountainside a specification because it conforms to an independent piece of information we have mm -hmm. from elsewhere, namely the faces of four uh, famous American presidents. But if you look at other parts of, of the hill that don't have those faces, they're complex also. Okay, mm -hmm. Those faces are complex. They have lots of features, lots of details. But lots of other hills in the area look, also look complex, lots of crannies and cracks. Yeah. So it's not just complexity that leads us to infer that something is designed. There has to be complexity, which means low probability of having it occurred in that particular pattern, but conjoined with specificity or an independent specification. Mm -hmm. And that independent specification is namely the pattern of the four faces of four famous <laughs> American presidents yeah. that they had seen in their studies of Earth uh, from the distance. Uh, but even if you didn't know about American presidents, there's enough specificity there to know that, oh, those are the four faces of human beings. That's right. And so you would have a weaker specification, in this case, not specifically for American presidents, but human beings. And that would still be enough to, uh, for you to conclude that, oh, yes, this is a product of intelligent design. But, it's, but if you look at, say, pictures of the face on Mars that were returned to us uh, in the 1970s by the Viking spacecraft, it sort of looks like a face if mm -hmm. the sun angle is right and, and such. Right. But that was photographed again when the lighting was different in the higher resolution uh, a few years ago. Right. And it doesn't look like a face. In right. fact, that's in your book. And, that's and right. the two examples are there. We could show those uh, to, to, because it's so, it's so obvious. Yeah. So right. the, t the specification has to be tight. Yes. has to be enough detail you, there for you to conclude that, oh, yes, that's such a tight specification, such a tight match between that pattern and this other independent pattern that I have. So, for example, if it had been a face with uh, sunglasses and a mustache and uh, yeah. nostrils and lots of other details, and you right. say, oh, yeah, that's a face. The specification is so tight, it can't be explained by wind and erosion. So if a human being, for instance, if life were uh, eliminated and you were the only existing human being and you walked into this studio, you would say this was designed by somebody with intelligence. That's, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. And yet uh, scientists are precluding that conclusion because of the scientific materialism. So That's we right. would say that an alien would be smart enough mm -hmm. to see That's evidence right. of design, but our current scientists are, are precluding that. Does that make them less intelligent than extraterrestrial intelligences? <laughs> no. and, and you can turn that around. Now, let's suppose not that aliens are visiting us, but that we're looking for aliens. There's a scientific program called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Yeah. It's actually a legitimate scientific program where we listen for radio transmissions from deep space that might be, have been sent from uh, civilizations far, far away from mm -hmm. intelligences. Mm -hmm. And scientists would conclude that they've discovered a, ancient, or a, a distant civilization if they uh, discover a certain pattern. Now, scientists have been studying, okay, what characteristics does that pattern, that radio uh, signal have to include for us to really conclude that it's uh, a civilization? Yeah. Well, D Bill Dembski, William Dembski has uh, put his finger on it and said that it's specified complexity that they would be finding yeah. in, the, in the radio transmission. Hmm. Uh, not only has to ha does it have to be a complex series of, say, digital numbers, if, say if it's in binary zeros and ones, mm -hmm. but it has to conform to some pattern, hmm. some independent pattern. And then we would conclude positively, yes, we've discovered evidence of a distant uh, intelligent agent. Uh, now, they wouldn't know anything about that agent mm -hmm. because they wouldn't be able to see them. Right. Uh, they wouldn't know any of their characteristics, 
but yet from the artifact uh, of this yeah. radio transmission, from the information encoded in the transmission, they will be able to conclude quite uh, correctly uh, that it had been sent by an intelligent agent and wasn't the result of uh, some law-like process or just chance. Now, you're extremely free with, uh, with your convictions concerning intelligent design because it's, it's scientifically provable, yes. uh, but you're actually receiving opposition within, in a sense, your own ranks and your own professorship uh, there at the university. Is that correct? Yes. At uh, Iowa State, uh, there was a petition circulated in late August mm -hmm. uh, denouncing intelligent design. It was signed by over 100 professors on campus, mm -hmm. although I don't think any of the uh, professors in my department signed it, which is astronomy and physics. Right. It's other professors. Uh, and actually, the petition was started uh, by uh, a professor of religious studies uh, named mm. Hector Avalos. So uh, he was formerly a professor of religious studies? He is a professor is? of religious studies. Okay. All right. And he's the one who actually started the petition and started circulating it uh, in opposition to uh, intelligent design generally, but uh, more specifically, uh, he was targeting me, even though he doesn't mention me by name, because oh, he had oh, been attacking me for the past year, actually, yeah. in local papers. Um, so what's interesting, though, is that he's not only associate professor of religious studies, uh, he's also uh, Iowa's most prominent uh, atheist. Oh, well. <laughs> That's interesting. So uh, this is good apologetics then for you, isn't it not? Yes, it's uh -huh. uh, good, good uh, practice, but, uh, but I think it's very telling that uh, I'm presenting an objective evidence of design. Yeah. Con confirmable. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yet people are opposed to that because they don't like the implications. It's certainly not based on any assumptions uh, I've made. We have got so much more to discuss, and we're going to have another broadcast. And uh, thank you again for tuning in. And Lord bless you. Uh, Professor Guermo will be with us again. This was the second in a series of three programs on this subject of intelligent design. The Bible is very clear that it was the God of the Bible that said, let there be, and there was. In fact, the Bible says that the heavens declare and speak a language in every nation, in every language, so that all can understand that there is a God that is a creator. Science, for the most part, wants to deny this principle. But the majority of humanity cannot, will not, comprehend what God has done. For the Bible says that in the last days there will be gross darkness upon the people. If you can comprehend and see that there is a God that created heaven and earth, you're a blessed person. Stay with us for the rest of the series. Today's program is one in a three-part series available on a DVD entitled The Select Planets. During the program, Brother Jeff Jenkins mentioned two timely documentaries. The first, The Privileged Planet, uses animation, interviews, and stunning images of the cosmos to explore today's topic in depth. The second, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, looks at the complexity of life and the question, what brought all of this into existence? All of these DVDs may be obtained by visiting us on the web at globalanswers.us and clicking on the Resource Center link. You may also write to us at Global Answers at 1695 Stewart Road in Lima, Ohio, 45801 in the USA. We'd love to hear from you. Email your questions or comments to us at info at globalanswers.us. Thank you for joining us, and may our Lord Jesus Christ